and welcome to the latest episode of Jumpcast, the podcast from the award-winning team behind Jumpcut Online. My name is Sarah and I'm your host for today and I am joined once again by Barry. Barry, how are you doing today? I'm doing quite well, thank you. It is a fairly warm day outside and uh, not much to complain about. Well, there's always something to complain about, but not much, <laughs> not much today. Not much today. We've watched a fabulous film and we are super excited to talk about it. So, Absolutely. you know, what 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 can be what can be wrong with that? Um I I don't know if you can uh, if I sound any different this week, but uh, I am uh, firstly recording in a different location. I have moved house since we last recorded. Was last week's one when the first one after you had moved? Maybe. Yes. Yeah. No, okay. second. Uh, okay. Peter Pan yeah. was the first one. The first one with with dog. Yes, I remember now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, it's all it's all happening at the at the moment. So Absolutely. we uh, not that this will be any different to the people listening. There will have only been a week since you heard the last episode, but uh, we we had a little pause on recording last week uh, just because my life was chaotic and full of boxes. <laughs> but it's much better now. The podcast equipment is unpacked and and ready to go. Um, and I, I have a, a fabulous little new microphone as well, which I got for my birthday. That is getting its first test run on this episode. So debut performance. Let's say, let's hope that it sounds uh, sounds fabulous. It certainly looks very nice on my desk. So um, let's let's hope it sounds as good as it looks. Um, <laughs> so we are talking about uh, Sleeping Beauty today. We're gonna we're gonna get right on into it. I think unless you've got anything else you wanted to. Uh, Nope, Wanted we're to... um we're on film number sixteen. We're making very good progress, if I say so myself. We uh, are we're only like seventeen years away from the end. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we're we're almost uh a third of the mm, not really. We're like twenty six seven percent of the way through, which I think is pretty good. Yeah, I'll take that. I think uh, like doing the uh few weeks with the package films, like two films in one kind of like really push things on a little bit i think if we were still kind of slogging our way through the package films we might be we might be feeling a little bit lethargic but um yeah we, we've had a we've had a good run of films that we've spoken about recently and i think that following following this film things get interesting as well and in kind of heading into the 60s is when there's kind of like some changes and particularly towards the latter half of the 60s is when things really start to change so I think this is going to be, uh, th- I mean, this is certainly going to be an interesting film to talk about because, uh, spoiler, we both love it. Um, but so, I think, yeah, the next the next decade is is interesting as well. And I'm looking forward to talking about quite a few of those films. So, um, yeah. All right. Let's 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 get right on into it because I am ready. I have so much to say. I have pages and pages and pages of notes. So <laughs> let's let's go. Um, so Sleeping Beauty uh, is uh, a film that has a plot description. That's on it, the end. Podcast <laughs> over. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next week. Uh, I was trying. I was trying to like do a real like smooth connection there, and <laughs> it just did not work for this me. This is a film. It has a runtime. It was released in theaters. Um, <laughs> it's then been released on home video. Uh, people have seen it. They sure it's have. Disney. The end. Yeah. <laughs> what people an, have what seen an it. analysis. Yeah, people have seen it. We have seen it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the plot description, uh, as uh, as always from IMDb, is uh, after being snubbed by the royal family, a malevolent fairy places a curse on a princess, which only a prince can break, along with the help of three good fairies. Um, 
so I'm ready. I'm ready to have my mind blown, Barry. Give me some. Give me some facts. No Tell me some interesting things. <laughs> no pressure. All right. So Sleeping Beauty came out in 1959, which is four years after Lady and the Tramp. Uh, they didn't really do many gaps until the 50s and the 40s. They basically came out every year. Um, and in the 30s, from you know 37, there was a gap between Snow White and and uh, Pinocchio. But this is the biggest gap so far of mm-hmm. uh, of four years. Uh, and that's partially because Sleeping Beauty take, took an incredibly long time to make. Uh, for marketing purposes, they uh, kind of build it as six years in the making. Uh, but that is a lie. I don't know why they said that. Uh, <laughs> because they could have easily said eight years in the making. Uh, because development for the story began as early as 1951. Uh, so really, um, from 1951 to 1958-beginning beginning of 1959, they were still working on uh, Sleeping Beauty. It came out, well, it came out in January 29th, 1959, so they would have finished in, in 58. Um, but really, like, the the story work began in 51. You know, voices were recorded as early as 1952. Uh, animation was the big thing that took so long, as we'll talk about, because it certainly looks different than every any other Disney film and really any other animated film. Um, and that kind of took from, like, 1953 all the way to 58. Uh, and the music was kind of recorded in 57. So, you know, it was a long process. So I, I, I don't know why they said six years. I feel like eight years is more impressive. The longer something takes, you know, the more epic it is in theory. Uh, so I'm kind of surprised they said six years, but it, it is indeed more like eight. Um, and the 1950s was a really successful time for Disney. Uh, we spend a lot of time in the 40s talking about how everything was kind of doomed by the war. And as is the 40s, is kind of that wartime era right after Bambi. Um, and you have them in like budget mode when they're just trying to get things through because they've lost most of their staff to the war uh, and other war efforts. Uh, and you're just kind of trying to hold the studio together. But now the studio, after Cinderella in 1950, is experiencing a pretty good financial time. Uh, Alice in Wonderland wasn't very successful, but Peter Pan and Lady and the Tramp did very well. Uh, and the studio was was doing was doing well. They were flourishing. They were certainly in a better state than they were. Uh, if you look at 1955 versus 1945, they were certainly in a better place. Um, also, the Disneyland Park opened in the 1950s, so they were kind of looking at different ways to make money, and, and merchandising was doing better, and, and things like that, and they were starting to really develop that. Um, so the 50s was a good time for, for Disney. Um, and if you look at box office success in just terms of you know audience viewing and, and what people still talk about, the, the most successful films from early Disney are the princess films. Uh, Snow White is obviously the first film, and it really changed uh, the way animation was to be forever. You know, it really changed the game, as we talked about at length. Um, and then Cinderella was kind of that re-bringing into, like, a sort of renaissance for Disney after the wartime era. So their two most successful films were, were princess stories and, and fairy tales, and there's not really any surprise that they would start to yearn for another one of these stories. And it felt natural to, you know, get on with another princess. And as we know now, there are are, are plenty of princesses, but this is uh, 22 years after Snow White, and there's, this is only the third princess. So I think the 90s was really the time, starting from The Little Mermaid, where there were princesses almost like every year. Uh, and before then, you know, it was it was kind of a every once in a while a, a princess story would show up. Um, so the original fairy tale is actually very short. It's something like four paragraphs. Um, so they had to do a lot of, of you know, creative work in, in kind of developing a, a story. Uh, for example, originally Sleeping Beauty was asleep for 100 years, uh, which is not the case in, in this. It's it's really only a matter of 
what seems well it's not very clear in the film it seems like an evening perhaps mm. like one or two um but she's certainly not asleep for a hundred years no. <laughs> i think the film will be longer if it was um <laughs> And it's interesting because the story that they had written was pretty much set by 1952, uh, which is quite a rarity for Disney because if you look back and even look forward at basically any other Disney film, you can kind of see in the production history, uh, story notes are kind of always being given and the story is always evolving and changing, adding characters, taking away, adding scenes, trying to get more heartfelt moments, etc., etc., etc. So you'd kind of be making the story really up until the very end. Uh, Sleeping Beauty was not the case for that, and they basically had it done, uh, you know, ended up being seven years before the film even came out. They were pretty much set in the story, um, but this time they really wanted to work on the design and that sort of idea of sophistication and, and, and really kind of push themselves again, which is what they did way back with Snow White and certainly with Pinocchio and, and Fantasia, that was kind of, and, and Bambi as well. Those were really their, like, that kind of period for them where they were pushing boundaries as much as possible. And then the wartime era kind of took that all away because they didn't have the finance to do so anymore. But after the last couple of films were successful, they were kind of able to start that process again after Cinderella. So this one was really all about creating something that looked incredible and like a real piece of art. And I don't need to tell you that they absolutely succeeded with that. Um, and Walt kind of said he, that he wanted this quote unquote moving illustration uh, with Sleeping Beauty. Uh, so an artist named John Hench, a Disney layout artist, went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in Manhattan uh, and went to their medieval galleries. Uh, and there he found the unicorn tapestries, which are these really incredible works that are still in Manhattan, I believe. Uh, and they have no known artist. It was it was a very long time ago, and they're kind of an enigmatic pieces because no one really knows where they're from or even when they're first seen. There's debate about when they were first found. I believe it was in some like fancy French royals house they found them in the first place like four or five hundred years ago. Um, but he came back and he kind of created these sketches, uh, John Hench, from what he saw. And he talked about it with Walt and he was like, this is this is it. This is the kind of image and, and, and story that we kind of want to create based around these images. Uh, and then we have the wonderful Irvin Earl, who we talked about a little bit uh, last week because he... Well, he started before Lady and the Tramp, but Lady, this is that was the first time he had his scenes and his work really in a Disney feature film. Um, so Urban Earl made these paintings based on the, these tests that John Hench made, and then Disney absolutely loved them. And he was like, this is perfect. This is the image we need. Uh, and then it was kind of history from there. But Disney had found, speaking of Walt Disney specifically, found that uh concept artists were making these amazing images and they weren't necessarily being translated fully to the screen uh take for example mary blair who created these amazing concept images for alice in wonderland and peter pan and walt disney felt like her ideas were really kind of watered down as they went through and, and they you know you don't see what you see in the concept art is a beautiful and a clear inspiration uh but those images aren't really translated directly to those films uh, and Walt was kind of thinking, like, well, why do we have these concept artists who create these amazing, breathtaking, like, really thoughtful and dynamic images, and we're not putting them directly into the films? So he kind of, if only Mary Blair, by the way, if only this, had, if only he had came to this realization like ten years earlier, because mm. Mary Blair would probably have stayed. And who knows how amazing? I mean, Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland look amazing, but who knows what they could have looked like? <laughs> if, uh, if she had full creative reign over them. Uh, mm. But basically, he decided to give Urban Earl full creative control. This was basically his film. 
Um, and it ended up being a pretty good choice, if, if you ask me. Um, Earl was really inspired by medieval artists and tapestries, uh, lots of Gothic and, and images from the Middle Ages, but also infusing this kind of bold, colorful, contemporary style. Um, and Earl supervised, there's no official thing on this, but it's generally considered that he had a hand in every single background. Uh, he didn't necessarily paint them all. Obviously, there's a, a very large team at Disney to create these films. Uh, but he was, they said that his thumbprint and like his approval was for every single image. He really had complete control over what you see in Sleeping Beauty. Uh, and he also had control over the way the characters looked, uh, which caused some issues with the animators. But the animators had a couple specific challenges because they had to make these characters stand out amongst, in Sleeping Beauty, there's these really detailed backgrounds with tons of characters in the back. And, and they're so layered and there's so much going on. Uh, while if you look at something like Bambi or even the last couple films in Lady and the Tramp and, and Peter Pan, they're beautiful, but there's not like hundreds and dozens of characters in the background that the characters are trying to compete with. It's, you know, trees and, and, and nature and cities or whatever it is, but they're not trying to compete with all these other things in the background like in Sleeping Beauty. So they had to make these characters stand out amongst these backgrounds, as well as having the style of these characters kind of match the designs, which it's obviously Sleeping Beauty is a very unique looking film compared to all the other Disney films. So they really had to challenge themselves to create characters that, that worked in this world. Um, and often the animators would clash with him, especially the, the nine old men, uh, and they would complain to Walt about this, and they'd be like, why does he have all this control? Uh, and they wanted to, you know, let their image shine through. But Walt said, no, ma'am, not today. Um, and he always took the, the side of, of Irvin Earl. And uh, they weren't really... They, they still had a good time with it, and they managed to... These are some of the best animators to ever exist and some of the best in, in history, the best artists in history. Uh, so unsurprisingly, they were able to to meet the uh, requirements. Uh, Mark Davis, for example, was responsible for Maleficent, who you may have heard of. Um, <laughs> he also animated Cruella de Vil in the next film, so he's, he's a pretty good guy when it comes to uh, drawing villains. Uh, and Maleficent was an interesting case because she didn't really interact with other characters as much as say Cruella de Vil in the next film she's always kind of talking to other people but Maleficent is kind of giving these like grand speeches um so it kind of gave her this they gave them this challenge of like how they would design her so they gave her a raven whose name is Diablo I don't know if that's actually said in the film do you know if it is it isn't I only know it I think from Maleficent the uh adaptation yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, his name, is, his name is Diablo, apparently, although Disney has a long history of characters that don't have names that apparently <laughs> very much have names. Um, so it's it's not shocking. Uh, Milk Call worked on Prince Philip and his wonderful horse. Uh, John Lounsbury did the amazing sequence with the two kings and the jester. Uh, and that's actually a really good example, I think, of how they worked with the stylings of Irvin Earl and these really complex and amazing designs while still... Uh, being true to that Disney sense of, of humor and you see the jester getting more and more drunk as that fight goes mm -hmm. on and it's one of the funniest if not the funniest moments in the film it's, it's really well done and it's that really great balance that these animators have um Wooly Reitherman supervised the dragon fight uh which kind of totally eschews any sense of logic and really just goes for emotion and like there's things like how does he get up there like you how does he even cut through all the forest but you don't care because it's so well done and it's so mm -hmm. emotional and it's such an adrenaline rush that that it's just such an incredible experience and and sequence uh that you uh you don't care that it might not actually make sense if you really think about it <laughs> 
Um, and then, and then there's another sequence, uh, which was called Sequence Eight, which kind of became quite infamous. Uh, and Eric Larson was working on it, and that is a sequence that Aurora and Philip meet for the first time, uh, in that wonderful dance, and it's it, it's wonderful and it's really amazing and it's essentially the most expensive sequence that it, ever in disney uh although not nowadays because nowadays it costs way way more but <laughs> at the time the most expensive they've ever done it was something like well over a hundred thousand dollars just for that like minute and a half um and it remains unknown what the total overall cost was but it was it was well over a hundred grand uh and i think they relieved eric larson of that duty at some point because basically if anyone was working on the film they had their input and, and tried to work on the sequence why it was so complicated no one really knows but it has it's kind of a legend and, and is known as, as sequence eight um so the voice cast is is pretty central to any animated film and it certainly is here uh Merrick costa was responsible for aurora and or briar rose and uh, she gave this really lovely warmth and, and dignity to the character. And, and Walt told her to, to paint with her voice, and, and she certainly did. Uh, mm-hmm. And it is her singing voice as well. And she was uh, an opera singer, and she sang with the, the Met Opera at some point. Uh, and then Bill Shirley, who was a pop singer, voiced Prince Philip. Um, Alice Davis was a costume designer uh, for Disney, and she made all the co- This was her first work with Disney, and she made all the costumes. I know what you're thinking. Why would you have a costume designer on an animated film? But she <laughs> made all the costumes that they did for the live action, which they used um, to, obviously, the artists used to, to reference and, and create ideas. Uh, and speaking of the live action, Eleanor Audley, who we know as Lady Tremaine, uh, acted as Maleficent in the live action and was Maleficent in the film as well and they really used her face and her character and her mannerism to create maleficent so without eleanor oddly uh maleficent probably would have been a very different and perhaps almost certainly a far less iconic and memorable character Mm. um and her voice just has this extraordinary power that really makes maleficent really freaking terrifying (laughs) um and verna felton who we love and adore and we'll talk about more uh voiced flora uh, I I love Flora Fauna Merriweather so very much, and I can't wait to dive in. Uh, but <laughs> Fauna is voiced by Barbara Jo Allen, who was part of the Bob Hope Show, and Merriweather was voiced by Barbara Luddy, who we know very well as a certain dog. She voiced Lady uh, in Lady and the Tramp, which is quite interesting because Lady is a very uh, elegant character, and I wouldn't say that about the wonderful Merriweather. So she has she has a good range bringing those characters to life. Uh, musically, the film is quite interesting because it's actually kind of all inspired by Tchaikovsky's Sleeping Beauty Ballet. Uh, and often for Disney, you know, they would kind of make the, their own music and, and, and kind of take the story from there. But this one was really inspired by music that already existed. Uh, but they actually had written a whole score uh, from written by Sammy Fine, which was a very traditional Disney kind of score. It hits all the same notes that you would expect. Um, and they had even written these kind of Broadway-style songs, as they did with all the others. Um, but they found that these songs wouldn't really fit the style and the mood that they were going for with Sleeping Beauty. However, one remained, uh, and you may have heard of it. It's Once Upon a Dream. Uh, <laughs> it is the enduring song of Sleeping Beauty. There are a few others that we'll talk about, but none of them really have the same impact that uh, Once Upon a Dream does. And George Bruns uh, did an adaptation of Tchaikovsky's ballet for the film. Um, and it that received the one and only Oscar nomination for Best Scoring of a Musical Picture, which obviously is not a category that exists anymore. Because um, back then, it was Best Scoring for a Musical Picture and Best Scoring for a Dramatic Picture. 
Um, and so Sleeping Beauty was extremely expensive in cost. Um, and it represented this kind of end of an era in, in Disney animation because it cost so much money. And while it was successful at the box office, it cost so much that it didn't really matter. Uh, and they still uh, <laughs> lost a lot of money. Um, and for the first time in a decade, they um, had overall losses as the studio, and it resulted in a whole bunch of layoffs. So this is kind of an end of another era. Um, we found Bambi was kind of the end of that first era, and then you have Ichabod and Mr. Toad and Melody Time ending the wartime era. So this is kind of the end of the next era, although you could argue, I think, that 101 Dalmatians through to Jungle Book is kind of part of the same Silver Age, or whatever mm-hmm. they call it. Um, but this was kind of the end of that like super high-budget, all-out expenses, no-expenses spared kind of style with animation that didn't really come back until probably like Beauty and the Beast when they just their budgets went through the roof in the 90s again, but they made so much money that it didn't matter. <laughs> um, and they used a process called Super Technorama 70, uh, which was a like a 70 millimeter widescreen that we kind of saw. We saw the beginning of widescreen with CinemaScope with Lady and the Tramp, but this was an even more expensive process uh, <laughs> that was used in films like uh, a um, Spartacus and, and other epics like that. Um, and it was also used in the only other Disney film that uses it is The Black Cauldron in 1985, which is kind of odd because if you look at the list of films that use this format of Super Technorama 70. There's about 20. There aren't very many ever. Um, Zulu is another one of the epics. But they're all kind of the last one is like 1967, 68, and then all of a sudden they reuse it with Black Cauldron. Uh, <laughs> and the thing that Sleeping Beauty and Black Cauldron have in common is that they both lost a lot of money. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> however, if you're talking like test of time, uh, one certainly stands above the other and Sleeping Beauty is, is still very much an enduring classic, even if it not destroyed the studio, but kind of ushered in the end of a very expensive way of making animation. Hmm. Yeah. Well, we have a lot to get into. <laughs> I'm like, where do I start? Um, I think let's, I mean, let's start with the, the animation, because I'm just dying to talk about how this film looks and i think that this film doesn't necessarily get the the credit it deserves for not just being like stunning uh stunning to look at but just being so different and so unique as well and it being the only film that um irvin earl had kind of full you know almost full creative control over it really does have his his stamp all over it and I've been looking at his kind of like concept art as well. And there isn't, there's not a huge amount of difference. If you look at the kind of like side by sides of his concept art and the actual stills from the film, I think they're pretty close and you don't really see that with the, with the other concept artists. I think obviously, you know, the point of concept art, that it is the, the vision of the artist that is then kind of like taken in, you know, with the animators and they then kind of put their, spin on that but i think this film is very different in its in its visual style and i absolutely love the way this film looks and i i think i'd last watched it maybe two years ago according to my letterbox anyway it was two years ago that i last watched this um but i just i was looking at it with completely different eyes this time it felt like and i was just 
like speechless <laughs> looking at the looking at yeah. this film and how stunning it looks i mean it's a it's basically a medieval painting come to life mm. for 75 minutes i mean and like you were saying with the concept like i was saying you know it's it was the first time that they were like you know what let's let's give the concept artist you know kind of full control yeah and and, and let them really reign and that's that's why the concept art looks basically like the exact film because it, it kind of was Mm. Um, and it was a great choice. I mean, it was it was cool that, to kind of relinquish control to someone else. I mean, it's not that Disney wasn't an animator. He was, you know, a, a master storyteller and, and producer. Mm. And he would kind of get these great story ideas and help really emphasize parts of a story. But he wasn't the one writing the stories. He, you know, he, he didn't write any Disney films, but he did. He was involved in the story and developing them and producing them. Mm. Uh, and he was amazing at bringing people together. Uh, and he was smart enough this time to be like, you know what, kind of, you take the reins on this and, and really go full steam ahead. Uh, financially, it might not have been the best decision. Um, but, you know, ultimately, Disney is a very successful company and, and they did make it through their, their financial troubles. Um, so it worked out. It all worked out in the end. But it was, it was you know, a great artistic decision. And it's a film that is very respected now. Uh, mm. And you can't say the same for the other Super Technorama 70 film, Black Cauldron. So, <laughs> it, you know, it worked. Um, but yeah, it's it's a it's a breathtaking film. It's really it's so detailed and it's mm. so there's so much in in every frame and it's I just it's so beautifully composed. It's kind yeah. of like every it's so lame to say you could frame every like shot on your wall, but you could find I, me yeah. one. Find me one where <laughs> you can't. I won't. I'll put any image from Sleeping Beauty on my wall. In fact, while I was watching it, I was like, I want this here. I want that there. <laughs> I just want my whole house to be like Urban Earl concepts and like shots from Sleeping Beauty because they really look amazing. Uh, I yeah. half my notes are like just like in all caps of like certain images that I I loved. Um, one of my very favorites is when they try and like seize Maleficent at the beginning and like this like flame surrounds her and she's kind of flanked by the soldiers on each side. And you see, like, a shot of, like, each side of the soldiers in, like, shock because they know they can't do anything. And it just, it just looks amazing. The whole dragon thing, when she's, when she goes up to the top of the tower and there's that, like, purple lightning bolt. Ugh. <laughs> Sarah. <laughs> it's so good. Go, get, like, pause this, go watch it, and come back. Like, it is so, it just looks amazing. And if you don't have 75 minutes right now and you only have the three and a half hours it takes to get through Sleeping Beauty and us talking about it, just just Google just Google images of Sleeping Beauty while listening to us and it'll be very rewarding. And you should do that because it looks amazing and it kind of contextualizes what we're talking about. Like it, it's really, it looks so different from any other Disney film. Mm. Yeah, They're I all th- kind of, you know, you can still tell though through the characters that it's Disney, but it just, it just looks nothing like, it, it, you know, if you look at, the three films in a row, so Lady and the Tramp, this, and then 101 Dalmatians, and you compare the three, you'd probably be like, yeah, 101 Dalmatians and Lady and the Tramp are definitely, if, 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 like, someone, you know, had never seen any of these films, doesn't know what Disney is, whatever, that doesn't exist, but theoretically, we find an <laughs> alien and show them these three films, they would be like, I bet they'd be like, these two films come from the same studio, but this one doesn't. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think the most striking, I, I, I think I, I can't remember if I mentioned it or if it was just in my dreams, but the moment where Maleficent, they're like trying to seize her and you can see the soldiers on both sides. Did I talk about that already? Um, Potentially. 
in my dream <laughs> anyway that is amazing uh, basically anything that involves maleficent yeah um, when she appears in the uh fireplace oh. the whole sequence where she where aurora goes to like prick her finger on the uh spinning spinning spindling spinning <laughs> english is really hard to say. spinning wheel it's spinning wheel right not spindling um yeah, I'm, oh, I'm doubting myself now. <laughs> Both are right. On today's podcast, Sarah and Barry grapple with the basic concepts <laughs> of English, uh, despite being English-born speakers and yeah. speaking their whole lives. Um, anyway, um, the whole dragon sequence, when she's like up on the top of the tower and there's that like purple lightning, is just... Uh, uh, um, the, all the stuff with, with the fairies. Also, the um, beginning sequence i mean every frame really there's a bit where she like aurora or sorry at the moment she's called briar rose dips her toe in the water um outside and she's surrounded by animals and it's just so beautiful um this whole film from beginning to end is my favorite scene hmm. <laughs> i knew um, you were gonna I'm say to that another i love i love um at the beginning right when they're each giving her like a gift and there's this little like song and it's this very like experimental basically like ripped from fantasia it mm. felt like almost those like little sequences with like each of you know the gift of beauty song um true love kiss thing that meriwether does because meriwether saves the day because she is a star <laughs> um yeah basically basically everything um mm. I- i'm trying to think of like a singular image if you okay if you could pick one image from sleeping beauty to like frame what would it be i think i would take the moment at the beginning where she's flanked by the the soldiers there's like three on each side they're like pikes or spears or whatever and she's there like and there's kind of like this green like flame outline around her i think that's what i would have on my wall Mm, i'm I'm trying to think i think that it would i mean it would definitely be a maleficent moment because i love her with my whole heart um i think it would probably be when when she is in her dragon form and she's on the the cliff and i i think um uh prince philip is like right on like the edge of the cliff and he's kind of got his sword and his yeah. it's like it's straight out of a of a medieval painting but it's so it's so striking the colors are so unusual it's like, and it's like a greeny flame isn't it yeah like, like surrounding them. yeah i love that i love that obviously like when she is in her kind of you know human form or malevolent fairy form um, that she kind of like appears with like the green flames and green is kind of a, a color that follows her around as well when she is like the green orb that leads Aurora to to prick her finger. Um, yeah. And obviously the purple as well, which is so often used for villains. But I love how that then kind of translates into her like dragon form. So the dragon is like mostly black, but has this kind of like purple belly and then the flames that the the dragon spits are are green and it's just so it's so unusual and so just incredible to look at i just i yeah i think that that image of maleficent kind of as a dragon would be the thing that i want on my wall because why would you not want like a same yeah like a super a super badass dragon on your wall like yeah that's what i, mean, I want the, the whole, <laughs> this, this, this film is 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 literal magic yeah um so i i interestingly about ivan earl he actually started out as a greeting card designer wow um and the greeting cards basically have the same kind of incredible art that you see in sleeping beauty so maybe if we can't afford the book maybe we can find some <laughs> greeting cards. look i'll take it <laughs> i'll take what the i can he, get um, <laughs> 
Yeah, a couple more things about it. So he was born in, in 1916 in New York, and he actually had polio as a child, which left half his face paralyzed. So as a result, he never really smiled, and people thought he was quite angry. But I think deep down he was quite a nice guy, nicer than people thought, because of his, of his face he kind of gave the appearance of, of someone angrier. But he was very serious about his work, uh, and very good at his work, as we can clearly see. Uh, he joined Disney in, in 1951, and he worked on a short film called The Little House, uh, which Mary Blair designed, uh, and he was very inspired by Mary Blair and was kind of like, this is now what I want to do now that I've seen what an incredible artist she is and what she can do for Disney. Like, I would like to do that as well. Uh, so he kind of trained uh, in on Peter Pan and Lady and the Tramp, and Lady and the Tramp, he did the sequence I talked about last week where they are like overlooking the town and you can kind of see it high, high up when Lady and the Tramp are on the mountain. Uh, so he drew that and Walt Disney really loved it. Um, and then he did a short as well called Toot Whistle Plunk and Boom, which is quite the name, uh, which won an Oscar for Best Animated Short. And he also did a short that I watched that I can't remember the name of uh, that was uh, Goofy as a Matador, which is quite a, uh, a fun one as well. Uh, but yeah, he, he wasn't at the studio for a very long time, but he did certainly have an impact and, and gave the legacy of probably the best, maybe the best looking Disney film there is. I, yeah, I was thinking about this over the weekend, actually, and I, I think I tweeted out some some stills from Sleeping Beauty. You did, and they are gorgeous. <laughs> frame all of, I would frame every image. Yeah, I was like, this is probably like the most stunning Disney film. And I, I was surprised by how many people kind of, responded and were like yes this is my favorite disney film i love this film it's definitely the prettiest it's like it's the most striking to look at and i was like huh okay i'm I'm glad that it's not that it's not just us that other people kind of think that way as well but i i think it the the look of this film kind of it speaks for itself really and there's yeah like i want to kind of focus in on that we we mentioned it briefly the the moment where maleficent appears kind of in the fireplace and I can absolutely remember being very scared of this whole sequence when I was little, but I just, it's still, I mean, it's still so terrifying, but I had forgotten about that visual of kind of her appearing in the fireplace and how it's, you actually you do see her, you see the the outline of her, you see her kind of like piercing eyes. Um, Cause I always just had in my head that it was that you only kind of see this like green orb. So it, when I saw like her there, I was kind of like, oh my goodness! <laughs> it really it that, took me aback a that's bit. Interesting. In in I think we've had a few examples of this where we have a very specific image in mind, especially with Bambi. Mm. Um, and it turns out to not be that because I also we're, we're in sync here. I also thought it was just like this floating orb, and then she followed the orb. Yeah. Um, she does not. She definitely follows Maleficent. Before we get into it, can you hear my dog snoring? Um, have you heard it at all? <laughs> I I can't, but now I wish I could. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, I, well, I'm glad you can't because she's a noisy snoozer. She's an old lady. She's almost eight. You know, give her some credit. But I was just making sure that, like, I didn't have to, like, move her before we continued. Okay. Yeah, this whole sequence is very, it's very highly stylized, mm. like the rest. It, 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 feels, it feels a little um, extra in the sense that there's, there's a little more, it feels like a dream sequence almost. Yeah. But it is, you know, very real. Um. And it's interesting that there is a spinning wheel because there's a whole thing about how they burn every single spinning wheel. So why did they keep one? Also, how do they make clothes for the last 16 years anyway? <laughs> so um, many questions. I have, a lot of, I have a lot of questions like that. I would like to get into them when we talk more about flora, fauna, and Meriwether because uh, I have some real concerns about the logical <laughs> gaps in how these people survived without the way they make clothes because I assume uh, they believe, I believe they, they date it specifically because 
one of the kings says this is the is either the 13th or 14th 14th century. So I'm pretty sure that's the only way you make clothes back then is with a spinning wheel or mm. you make Anyway, sorry to go off track. We'll get back to that, listeners. If you are curious <laughs> about how they survive through 16 years without making presumably anything, uh we'll get to it. We'll get to it. But yeah, yeah this this sequence it kind of actually it reminds me a lot of um Labyrinth. Mm. Um when they're, I, I would not be surprised at all if they took inspiration. That whole bit where the Florifauna and Meriwether are trying to follow them, and there's all these sorts of like extra pathways that they can go into. Yeah. Um, also, at one point, I believe it's Fauna, and she's like, Why did we leave her alone? That's a good question, Fauna. <laughs> Why did you leave her alone? You have been like helicopter parenting over her for 16 full years. And, like, what, the night of, you're like, oh, well, everything's fine. We've just plopped her in the castle. We're good to go. Maleficent is the baddest girl around. She's going to find you. Uh, <laughs> I, I just don't, like, you don't think Maleficent has kept an eye on the castle this whole time? You couldn't, like, hold on to her for another, like, six hours? Yeah. The logic Man. at that point. Come on. <laughs> Come on. I, yeah, I, I have, I mean, I have some questions about the, the parenting of, uh, of the fairies, but we will absolutely get absolutely. to that. <laughs> we will. Yeah. We, when we, when we talk about the themes, the whole one is parents. So we'll, we'll dive in then. Oh boy. Um, yeah. But yeah. But yeah, Maleficent, in the, it's really, it's scary. And it's, yeah. and it's, it's actually kind of, the resolution is quite funny because they're all waiting <laughs> to see, uh, Aurora. What I don't understand is why haven't, the king and queen seen aurora like why i have so many questions about the logic of what's happening before she gets up before she pricks her finger if she's in the castle Hmm. why aren't the first people that she sees her parents yeah why has she been brought to this like room where she's gonna cry why not like show her some people so she feels less alone. Okay, mm-hmm. I get it's shocking because she's literally, presumably, for the last sixteen years, seen nobody except for Prince Philip that earlier that day, and then Florifon and Merryweather and the animals she's pals with. But like, she hasn't seen anyone. Mm. I, I I just don't get it. Maybe it would be too shocking. It, it it is a very strange, and it's not like every moment of every story needs to be scrutinized like this. But it's like. I get it. I get why it happens. So this could happen, and she could prick her finger, and then this whole thing could happen. But this is a very easily avoidable sequence. I feel if she is just surrounded by her family, because presumably, her mother and father would like to spend some quality time with her before she's married off. Yeah, I, I... considering they had zero, they had no time. She was a newborn, and then she was taken away for sixteen years to be like kept safe. Yeah, you'd think that they would be a bit more like oh my goodness where is she like we want to see her we have not like the last time they saw her she was a baby like it's like fresh out of the womb like barely could not speak nothing she has no idea what her parents look like i'm sure well she only just found out that this day that she is a princess yeah and that her name isn't briar rose (laughs) Uh, it's 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 just mad to me but the whole (laughs) sequence is is sorry to go way off track but it's it's relevant to sleeping beauty it's it's all about sleeping beauty yeah it just doesn't make it just doesn't make a lick of sense (laughs) you are right uh um yeah i try not to sometimes i like really bog myself down in the logic of these films and i'm like it's yeah it's a film sarah just trying to enjoy it i got i got distracted (laughs) but the point the point i wanted to make was it's really funny because flora uh is just like you know what we've screwed up here so let's put the whole kingdom to sleep until we can sort it out (laughs) i love that i thought i i actually cackled this time normally i take it quite seriously that scene but i just thought it was really funny that like what a what a great way can you imagine you screw something up and you're like wait 
I can fix this. Let me just put Earth to sleep for a few hours until I can sort it out. You would never miss a deadline. You would never stress about anything. <laughs> I, you know, you could just you could just hit. The, you'd live for so. You could watch. You could. That's the only way you could watch like every film ever existed. Just just put the world to sleep for a few years and then watch them all and then go back to in the resume. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a fun solution. And uh, unfortunately, it can't work in the real world. But I really respect the spirit of not taking ownership for your issues <laughs> and just putting every single person that could possibly get upset with you to sleep and that they never have to find out about what happened. I, lo- I love like how quickly they kind of like come up with the plan as well. They're like so fast within like <laughs> moments. They're like, they like put her in the bed. She's like, they're like, all right, she's done for let's, let's find Prince Philip or let's find this man that she was talking about. And then while they're putting everyone to sleep, the one King, is it Hubert? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Hubert like mentions Prince Philip talking about once upon a dream and then she makes the connection and then they go find him and all that, Mm. which is great. And I love everything about the sequence of putting them all to sleep. It's beautiful. Like everything in this film is just breathtaking. Um, But I think that that spindle sequence and the sequence, sequence eight, the notorious one Mm. where they dance together for the first time are two of the most magical moments as well as the dragon fight. I think those are the three real standout moments but i mean it's hard to pick when they're all so great but let's um let's hmm what next should we should we get into the the green queen herself i would absolutely love to (laughs) because i love maleficent so much so eleanor oddly is back uh she's maleficent as i as i said in the uh history bit and and last uh not last week a few weeks ago uh we spoke about cinderella as she is lady tremaine uh, so her second iconic villain in Maleficent to now is, I would say, definitely the most memorable mm. villain of any of the ones that we've talked about all so far. She's not necessarily my all-time favorite, although she she may be. Um, I think there's some in the 90s that I, that I prefer, just because I probably watched those movies more as a kid. Um, but she's definitely... Her and Captain Hook, I think, have, have stood the test of time the most of the early villains. Mm. Um, but Maleficent is still, I mean, she's still very popular now. They lit- She's the only villain they've made a whole film off of, too, actually. That's true, yeah. Uh, you know, like, in, in the, the last one came out last year. Mm. Uh, so, you know, Maleficent is still a character that has endured 1915 to uh, 60 years. Mm. You know, she's been a, a relevant, she's been in merch uh, since basically Sleeping Beauty came out and is still features in in merchandising uh she's definitely she could be the single most iconic villain in in disney what what do you think yeah i i think so and i think it's there's a combination of things really she has that incredibly striking look to her um so in terms of kind of like putting that on on merchandise it's it, it just works instantly because she just looks evil she looks amazing i love the colors and everything else um she has some really kind of like great lines as well like her delivery of of when she says fools is just so iconic and i love it um and i just, yeah i i think that i mean the 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 voice work of of eleanor audley is just really quite incredible and too it's astounding it 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 it's hard to imagine any other voice. Yeah. And she had such, such command, just like Lady Tremaine did. Lady Tremaine, 
you know, it's interesting because they're both so threatening, but like Lady Tremaine has no powers or mm. anything. She's mostly terrifying because of the way she's drawn it and her voice. And Maleficent is terrifying for a whole other dimension because not only is she scary to look at and has a really scary and powerful commanding voice, but she also is extremely powerful. Mm. Um, and this is kind of the first villain, I think, that has... I think this is the first villain that has powers. Yeah. I'm just trying to think. There was there was a queen who didn't have powers. The the Pinocchio villains are just mean. Um, there's no villain in Dumbo. There's no villain. Oh, the man in Bambi is just a man. Um, Lady Tremaine. Um, Captain Hook is you know he's a strong pirate, but he doesn't have superpowers. Mm. Um, and uh, the Queen of Hearts is just nuts. So this is the first <laughs> you know this is the first this is the first queen um villain with with powers. Uh, and there aren't too many actually that have like superpowers. Mm. But she's certainly the first one. Yeah. Um but yeah, she's uh she's really scary and I think one of the reasons she's so frightening is they they really take a lot of attention to detail in Sleeping Beauty to make the characters move uh and act like people. Mm. Uh the the human characters obviously. Uh but they really they really do you know, it's kind of like not like a fairy tale that they they move like humans and and they they act kind of like the way in Bambi, like the deers are so feel so real. Like these these people feel so real, and Maleficent feels very plausible, even though she's essentially a green fairy that turns into a dragon. Like you you can feel that Maleficent could exist in everyday life, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, she seems and like a that... tangible like a yeah. tangible person like it's she feels very one of real. the many reasons she's so scary and and she just has such commanding power and she's not afraid to use it mm. um yeah she's she is amazing and the design that they did with her is amazing she looks so good so scary and kind of all of the best well i don't want to say best because it's all amazing but comes up with like the best art in this film and the best visuals in this film are kind of all cued around maleficent and these flashes of purple and yeah. green and it kind of gets the most color out of her even though she's primarily dressed in black and you kind of have to love how spiteful she is and how nasty she is <laughs> that her whole motivation and we can talk about the live action one because i think my problem with the live action is that they ruin her in terms of her motivation mm -hmm. um and like why she is evil um, but like the whole, basically she's feared anyway, and she's considered evil or nasty or, or whatever. She lives in the, um, what is it? Forbidden mountains. Yeah. Something like that. And she, <laughs> you know, she's clearly established as like a villain, but like the reason she curses Aurora is that she wasn't invited to her birthday party. <laughs> I love the pettiness. <laughs> <laughs> like she is petty. She is, she is spiteful she is vengeful and she's she's nasty but that's kind of relatable in a sense you know it would suck if uh an important person in the world had a birthday and you're also important and you know you're not invited that you know that does hurt whether it's enough to curse someone to death i couldn't say <laughs> <laughs> that's not my, not my place to speak for maleficent um but i think i think that's kind of part of what makes her scary and and what what makes a lot of the Disney villains scary is they're kind of rooted in these real ideas of things that would upset people and, and then that would kind of drive them to be because she's clearly an outcast. Mm. Um and, you know, her feelings are clearly hurt that she wasn't included in this. Um that's I'm not saying that's justification, but I'm saying that's something <laughs> someone any that's something anyone watching can relate to yeah. and kind of 
be on Maleficent's side. Whether, I mean, you're not really on her side because she is pure evil, but I'm totally on Team Maleficent. I don't know. She's great. I want Forbidden Mountain to, like, be the place where everyone hangs out. It looks like fun. (laughs) (laughs) I am also, I mean, I think I'm always, like, Team Villain, like, low-key, but, like, I am absolutely Team Maleficent. And I think that, like, part of the reason why people love her so much and why she has kind of, like, lasted as one of, like, the truly iconic villains is that kind of is that pettiness like i do fi- i do find it quite funny that that is the thing that started it all and she is very quick to like throw out that curse as well she's not like let's talk about it you know let's uh, <laughs> let's come to some sort of agreement here or you know here's what you're going to oh, do no, for there's me no arguing with her she's like this is happening yeah done. she she Sorry. throws out Ooh-hoo. that curse <laughs> and it's not even like a, i had forgotten that the because I just I the way I remembered it was that she cursed her to kind of um, prick her finger and fall asleep, but she curses her to prick her finger and die. It's only because one of the fairies that they are able to kind of yep. counter curse almost and sort of say, you know, she will not die. She will she will just you know fall asleep and can be awoken with with love's first kiss. But yeah, yeah, it's and you know what Maleficent's only fault is bad timing because if she waited mm. for Meriwether's third gift. She would have won and she would have got what she wanted because she did prick her finger. Yeah. But because she did it before Meriwether could give her gift, she was impatient. She was so excited to be spiteful, <laughs> Miss Maleficent, that she she missed her chance to wait a few more minutes and really pack a punch. And then, well, although if that happened, obviously there would be no story. Mm. Uh, so yeah. it couldn't happen. But if only yeah. she would have won. She would have <laughs> been like the only villain in, in Disney to really win. Uh, and she's one of the few that we see die. Mm. Uh, and not only do we see her die, we see her sidekick, Diablo, die as well. I know. Sad times. Poor Diablo. Meriwether <laughs> turns her to stone, which is pretty brutal, if you ask me. I I kind of forgot that happened. And when she was, like, chasing her at the end, which is also amazing, mm. um, I, I was expecting to turn to, like, for Diablo to turn into, like, a, a, like a bunny rabbit or something. Mm. Or just, like, a tiny bird. I didn't. I forgot that she turns him to stone and sends him to death. <laughs> yeah. Meriwether does not muck about. Um, she is, to quote that very popular song, she's a savage. <laughs> she's a savage. Um, I think we uh, let's let's get on to our our lovely Meriwether and the fairies in general. I think, but well, I think it was fairly obvious how much we love Maleficent. So uh, we stand obviously, but she is not the official in this house. We stand pick for this week. Um, that honor is mm-hmm. she does not have our official stamp not the, the stamp. whole world because the whole world stands maleficent we don't yeah. need to add to that yeah we, we do anyway yeah <laughs> we love her we will happily spend lots of time talking about her but no our our um honor is bestowed upon the lovely merryweather and i i love the fairies in general i think they're really great great characters and, and great sidekicks which is obviously something that we we talk about a lot in yeah in Disney films, they also kind of like fill that role of of surrogate surrogate parent as well. Um, we'll we'll kind of get onto the themes in a little bit, but yeah, I I really like the um the animosity between Meriwether and Flora. They kind of like always seem to be those two in particular. Like always seem to be kind of like at each other and conflicting. Whereas Fauna yeah. is just this kind of like lovely like sweet lady in the middle. But Meriwether just, yeah. is she deserves all the credit because i would say that she like plays a very i mean she plays an important part in terms of like counteracting the curse that maleficent throws out as as we just talked about but kind of like as the film goes on as well she really like becomes like the hero almost and i think that 
I mean, that's one of the reasons why I love her, but also she's just this like very, very cute kind of like unassuming little character who I just, I love the way she like gets frustrated and sort of like mm-hmm. <laughs> stamps her feet yeah, and stuff. The, but yeah. The the dynamic between the three is interesting because Flora, who um for those who can't remember their names, Flora is in red, Fauna is in green and Meriwether is in blue. Um, but Flora, you know, she's all she's very much like the matriarch of the group, and she's very mm-hmm. much the we're doing this and that and this. And Fauna's always like, yes, definitely, let's do it. And Meriwether is the one who kind of questions and says like, oh, I don't know if that's a good idea. <laughs> um, for example, when they're when they do that great little thing where they turn really tiny and go into like a, a jewelry box so Maleficent can't hear them or no one can hear them, um, to create this plan of how they're gonna save Briar. Well, they call her Briar Rose, but Aurora from. She has so many names. Sleeping Beauty, Aurora, and Briar Rose. <laughs> and she doesn't even speak. Um, but anyway, they, <laughs> they have this whole thing about how, you know, they're going to hide her away. And they essentially decide that they will, will mother her and raise her uh, without magic. And Fauna's like, oh, okay. And Meriwether is not having it. There's this really fun little sequence where, like, she's trying to take her wings away. Um, and she's doing everything she can to to prevent it from happening. But, you know, she 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 doesn't want to do it. And uh, honestly, I relate to that deeply. So same. I, I get it. Uh, I don't want to do that either. <laughs> Which I, I really appreciated. And then there's this my favorite exchange in the whole film uh, is when they are putting on the they're making the dress uh, and they're very bad at it. And they're making the cake and they're very bad at it. Uh, which leads to another question I will get to in one second. But the exchange is uh Fauna, Flora is putting the dress on Meriwether and Meriwether says, it looks awful. <laughs> and Flora says, that's because it's on you, dear. And I, I got it. It's so it is good. A, it is a brutal takedown. It is really funny. And it's one of the really great, like, sassy exchanges in Disney. Like, the Elephant Matriarchs have a bunch. There's loads throughout Disney where there's just really snappy comebacks mm. that you, like, almost don't even register as, like, nasty. But it's pretty nasty and it's really funny. <laughs> Um, but my question is, how on earth <laughs> Briar Rose yep. got to 16 <laughs> and is like a very dignified, like almost queen-like in behavior. Yeah. And these people have no idea how to cook anything, as is evidenced by <laughs> folding in eggs, which is my favorite visual gag in the film. I love it. Um, and it's one I, I have always, it's probably like one of the few images that I always remember and always like think about from time to time because i remember that as a kid and i genuinely like assumed that was how you baked um (laughs) because you know i was young and unassuming and i i still don't bake this day so i really don't know what folding in eggs means uh but i was convinced for a very long time that it was what she did um (laughs) and i and i love that but how did they get her to be so wonderful and lovely and and poised and dignified if they cannot make any clothing and they cannot make any food that is a very I want to know. Good. I want I want an answer. I need to know. I want to talk to Walt. I I want I want to know because it is the one there's a lot of logical leaps in pretty much any fairy tale and I get that. Mm-hmm. But this one is the first time I thought of that. I was watching it uh the other day and I was like how on earth? <laughs> how they they cannot do anything and they've this is they're only bringing out the magic at the very end. Is it is it the case that they've actually been using magic throughout and they this is but it doesn't seem like it. It seems like this is they're finally bringing it up because mm. it's the last night, right? Yeah, and they're so excited to like. I think it, it's Meriwether, isn't it? Who's like, like, let's see, like, let's use magic, and like, she's dying to do it. And then when like they finally like get the chance to use their magic again, like they're all like so excited. So it feels, 
yeah, I I, <laughs> I echo this question. Uh, I would also like answers, but yeah, it does it it does. I mean, maybe they had, but the only the only answer I can come up with, and this is obviously just like pure speculation, is that like all three kind of like independently of each other have just been kind of like using a bit of magic on the sly. Um, and each one of them has kind of like done that thing where they're like, no, no, I didn't use I didn't use any magic. But I would put money on the fact that Meriwether absolutely used magic. Yeah. Because <laughs> she did not want to do this in the first place. And Meriwether, you know, she's not like Fauna. Fauna is a kind of person that would give up magic as long as Flora told her to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but Meriwether's not that not that lady. No. That's not her. She she <laughs> she absolutely marches to the beat of her own drum, which I, I admire. Yeah. And it's one of the many reasons we stand. Oh, yeah. um, I love her. But yeah, I think she, she really gets like a kind of heroic redemption at the end she's kind of perceived at the beginning as a bit bumbling mm. and she's always the last one when they're walking or running she's always the last one you know she's always she's always behind the other two it's always flora then fauna then merryweather um but yeah she really she really shines at the end as as her own and, and is really able to kind of redeem and, and be heroic i mean she stops the the crow mm. or the the raven i keep thinking it's a crow but yeah it's interesting because I feel like in many ways Cinderella was kind of like secretly low-key progressive in the fact that like Cinderella was a very you know she spoke back she stood up for herself and it took a while but she got there mm. um and you know she she had dreams and goals and and Snow White's only real goal is to like find love and so is Aurora's and I mean Cinderella's is too but it she it feels like she has more ambition yeah there's more that. to her and you don't yeah, and to be fair, you don't really get Disney princesses with ambition until the 90s, or like, because Ariel has literally none. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you don't really get, and Belle barely has any, but she has the most up to this point. Um, but, you know, you it's really only like the last 10 years with like Moana and like Frozen that the, the princesses have ambitions other than just love. Mm. So it takes a really, really long time to get to that point yeah um but sleeping beauty is probably at this point the worst example in terms of regressive gender politics <laughs> um because she has virtually no agency um and for those unaware agency kind of just means like her existence and her choices and what she's able to do uh whether to have lots of agency means you get to make your own choices and you get to inform your own life existence but it feels like everyone has decided the life for her um and she just kind of follows along blindly and 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 merrily and honestly she doesn't put up much of a fight when they find out that like when she finds out her whole life is not what she thought it was uh like she cries but she goes with them she doesn't like try and run away mm. um and she's just like and and the, they don't give you enough time to get to know her like you don't really know anything about aurora at the end of this movie except she wanted to fall in love um the at least in this one they do spend some time together and it's kind of an interesting callback to cinderella because the prince does explicitly ask for her name mm -hmm. uh which she doesn't give but unlike very dumb prince charming mm -hmm. who was never actually named prince charming we know that um but the prince and cinderella never thinks in the hours they're dancing together to ask for her name uh which would have solved a lot of problems at least prince philip tries that's true. Um, and Prince Philip, to this point, is the prince we definitely spend the most time with, because you spend virtually no time with Prince Charming, and you spend absolutely no time with the prince from Snow White, mm. because he's only there at the very beginning and the very end. 
And you actually spend more time, I think, with Philip than you do Aurora. That's a good point, actually. Yeah, I think that he, like, screen time-wise, he probably gets... Because he has the whole kind of, like, fight and stuff with Maleficent later, I think if you if you did it kind of, like, minute by minute, he probably does have more screen time than her, which is... I mean, it's not yeah. it's not hard to have more screen time than Aurora in this because she is in it so little. But, like, going back a little bit to what you were saying about how kind of, like, streamlined the the plot is so even i mean even when she is not she is not present on screen the entire thing is about her so i think it it always feels like she is in it more than she is and that she is a more kind of like it sounds hard to say like a more important part of the story than what she is because obviously she is important but yeah she does she does kind of lack that um I don't want to say lacks anything. That's really harsh. But like, she doesn't kind of have she that. Does. Yeah, she does. She, uh, uh, they don't. They don't give her anything. No. She she exists. You see. So okay, when do you see her? Let's if we go through it. You see her going out for the day to walk around with some animals. She sings a couple songs about love. Uh, she finds the prince. She's told that she is a princess. You see her crying in the castle for a few seconds you see her prick her finger and then you see her be kissed and woken up Mm. and then she like comes down and this kind of the ending's kind of weird because she like comes down and like takes a while to embrace her parents which which makes sense from her perspective i would have thought her parents would like run at her Mm. i know they're like the king and queen and they have to be regal or whatever but i don't know i think you'd be a little more excited like for example way in the future entangled uh, it's kind of the, a, a parallel in the sense that they're both separated from their child. Mm. Um, they are very excited to see their child and they run at her right away. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> it, it feels very distant and like they have a hug. They do not speak to each other. They don't say hello or like I missed you or anything. They literally just get on with the dancing. That is all we see of Aurora. <laughs> uh, we we don't really get to know her like we do Cinderella mm. and in uh, a certain regards Snow White as well. Um it's frustrating, I think. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's kind of overshadowed by the fact that all of the other characters are really quite interesting. Hmm. But it's strange that the tight the like you know the titular character is basically non-existent. Yeah, and and like um, she. What am I trying to say? Um, I feel like she's talked about more yeah. than she talked. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. Like, and I mean the film is called sleeping beauty and i think that that she as a as a character is certainly something that people you know would associate with this they you know remember certainly the scene of when she's asleep and and woken up so she is she is known for kind of like what what happens to her basically i mean the clue is the clue is in the title of the film but yeah she is different to all the other princesses so far in that even when it seems like she is is being independent and making decisions for herself actually like we the audience know know the thing that she doesn't know so they're like meet cute is kind of interesting because neither knows who the other one is and obviously we at this point know exactly who these people are um so and and you know, we've watched enough Disney films and enough fairy tales to know how this, how exactly this is gonna, this is gonna pan out. But th- they, when they meet, he thinks that she is just a peasant girl because that is how she is dressed, and she thinks yep. he is, you know, just 
I don't know, a handsome dude wandering around the... Honestly, it's amazing she has clothes at all with those in charge. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And uh, yeah, he's 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 just this guy. And then obviously both of them kind of like go off and say, Aurora sort of says like, you know, I've, I've, I've met this this guy and, and I want to marry him or, you know, I want to be with him or whatever. And and Philip says the same thing. But so even even when it seems like Aurora is kind of like, you know, breaking away and doing her own thing and she's met this guy and that's the person who she wants to be with her her kind of like path is always like entirely set out so she does like completely lack agency because what we we know we as the audience are privy to this kind of like extra piece of information and that they you know that that is that is her true love that is you know he is going to be the one to kind of like wake her up at the end and and break the curse but yeah, she, she for me, which I think is why I like gravitate so much towards Maleficent as well, and the the fairies and the other characters is that she is the least important part of the story to me. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, the, the, the prince, heck, the prince's horse, like, is as like has as much to do as she does. Oh, like, I love Samson. <laughs> Samson, oh, we're gonna we're gonna get to this. So, so actually. Do you do you have anything to add on Aurora, or or shall we shall we just quickly jump to Samson because there's another comparison I want to make with Tangled. Yeah, I I I like the I do like the the voice work of the character, and I think her oh she's fantastic singing voice is beautiful, and she's she gives her way more life than the film wants to give her. That's very true. Yeah, she is putting everything into that into that vocal performance of the film, or the story is giving her nothing back, but. <laughs> Yeah, let's 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 move on to lovely Samson, and you can. Uh... So, so Samson is um is Prince Philip's horse, and when I was watching it this time, I was kind of floored because he's Maximus. Yeah, from <laughs> for like, sure. That that horse would not exist without Samson. Uh, they're very similar in facial reactions in in the way they kind of like when because at the beginning prince philip's like oh what's that song like it's so beautiful and in in the horse is like i do not care let's carry on like <laughs> let's keep going like that's very maximus energy and and another comparison with tangled i guess is that it, maximus is very clearly inspired by by samson so mm-hmm. it's why it's fun kind of going back from the beginning you can kind of see things like that and you you i to be honest forgot samson existed at all before i watched yeah it same um so it was interesting to see that when it, it feels like a very obvious and very clear parallel between those two horses. Mm, yeah, and and I there's like way more kind of like parallels with Tangled that I noticed this time around. Like Tangled is a film that I watch like a lot. I watch it it's really. Cool. Yeah, I watch it like every couple of months, and sometimes I just put it on as like a film in the background because I've seen it so many times that I can just it can kind of just happen, and I don't need to be like. 100% invested attention on it but I this time like when I was watching Sleeping Beauty I was like yeah there are a lot of there are a lot of similarities the whole kind of like thing with being apart from the parents and being brought up by like surrogate mother figure obviously very different surrogate mother figures but you know there is there is that similarity there that kind of like not knowing both pretty bad at being surrogate. Yeah, very <laughs> true in their own ways. Um, yeah, that kind of like not knowing who they really are. Mm-hmm. But where the differences are is obviously in, in Rapunzel, she she does have a lot more to her. She has this kind of, this longing. She's way more fleshed out. For sure, yeah. yeah the, the desire to to do her own thing. She's kind of like fiercely independent and, you know, very creative and, and all the rest of it. And it's almost like they they take the 
you know the what they have in in aurora and in the older princesses as well and in the new films they kind of like they take a lot from those but then they add much more to them there's so much more nuance yeah. the the modern princesses and yeah i think the the uh samson and maximus comparison i i could i thought the exact same thing as well i was just like i don't remember this horse but i love him and also yeah. it's making me want to watch tangled because i love maximus so <laughs> yeah i mean in, in in the whole the whole princess thing is is very much a sign of the times mm. like i i feel i'm sure if you made tangled in 1959 and um call it in 2000 i believe 2010 or 11 tangled is i think it's 2010 yeah. and if you made sleeping beauty in 2010 it would probably be the exact opposite you know you'd probably have rapunzel you'd barely see her and she would just kind of be told what to do and kind of follow the thing and then aurora would be more of a uh follow your own path beat people up with a frying pan kind of gal mm. um, well if they made it now it would be it would be shrek <laughs> because princess fiona yeah. is basically and would, aurora well, and it would be a live action remake as well yeah. it would probably be six <laughs> hours long and, and not very good um <laughs> but yeah, it's 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 interesting to see. Like, it'll be interesting when we get to more princesses. And I I actually think the next one, unless I'm forgetting one, is all the way in 1989 with the Little Mermaid. I feel like there's a huge gap. Mm. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, there really isn't another. Because I I, I I'm pretty well. There is a princess in the Black Cauldron, but I don't. It's not really. It's not her film. Like the next princess film, I'm pretty sure is the Little Mermaid. Yeah, I'm just checking my list now, and you are absolutely right. Yeah. yeah, that's that's crazy. So there are literally, it's literally thirty years before we get another princess. So a lot has changed in the world and society from 1959 to 1989. Mm. It'll be interesting to see because Little Mermaid might be the most regressive of all of them. Yeah. So it, it it'll be interesting to see uh what changes or indeed doesn't change uh between the two when we get to Little Mermaid in 2027. Mm. Um. but yeah the there's a lot of the the princess movies are obviously i think the first thing when you think of in disney is the princess movies so it'll be interesting to see when when we get there um should we go into themes yeah i think so we've kind of skirted around all of them so again the the themes we've got um that we've kind of picked up on from the beginning that we followed along um absence of a parent the disney death uh man in nature and uh sidekick sidekick we've kind of talked about there's loads even this is the first time actually no this isn't this is the second time a villain has a sidekick yes um because captain hook had smee um and maleficent has diablo and and, and captain hook kind of started that trend of villain having villains having sidekicks mm. and basically throughout the whole 90s uh all of the villains you know they have Viago. um there's others that obviously now that i've mentioned i can't think of any <laughs> um but there, are, I swear, there's more. Uh, um, flotsam and jetsam, mm. uh, pain and panic. Uh, there we go. I remembered some. Um, <laughs> Percy and um, oh, whatever. Um, I can't remember the name of the villain in Pan- Pan- uh, Pocahontas, but the um, he has um, Percy. Percy the dog. And then yeah. There's, yeah, there's Percy the dog, and then there's also like a a man that that is his sidekick too. Mm. Uh, but basically, all the villains in the '90s have have sidekicks, and they're in many ways as iconic and memorable as uh, the villains themselves. Mm. Uh, so this was kind of the beginning of that, and uh, they all talk in uh, in the '90s, and <laughs> they they um, obviously Diablo does not speak. He's one of the few prominent animals that doesn't talk. Mm. Um, 
The only animal that does kind of talk in this is the owl who says who, which I find really, really funny. Cause that's obviously an owl sound, but it's perfectly timed for when she when there's an opportunity to ask who. And he says, who? that's a great Twice. gag. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, 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 it's kind of remarkable Disney magic, because while it looks so artistic and exquisite, there are still lots of fun visuals. Mm. And and funny humor, sassy lines. You know, there's lots of great dialogue and really great character work, which is funny because there's so little character work for the titular character, but all the other characters are quite well fleshed out, yeah. except also the queen, who I don't think speaks. I don't even think you know her name, um, but you know it's King Stefan, but I don't know if they ever say her name. So this film isn't a huge fan of of, of women, but that's a whole other thing. Apart from Maleficent and the fairies, yeah. but. <laughs> Yeah, well, Maleficent gets killed. Yeah. Um, and she's very much the villain, so I'm not sure if they love her, no, but she true. is memorable and she is iconic. Um, but yeah, no, the fairies come across quite well, but the fairies technically aren't human, mm, um, which is, I think, is in, which, and neither is Maleficent, so I think it's an, an important distinction. Sure. Uh, because, <laughs> you know, film is very much a, a reflection of society in many ways, and, and Disney was extremely popular and remains extremely popular and kids watch disney movies old classic disney movies they're kids honestly they're probably the only movies that are like 80 90 70 60 years old that younger kids would watch and that parents would show their kids which makes sense Mm. um if they want recommendations for older kids films to show their kids let me know i'll give you some (laughs) um but generally speaking you know kids are going to watch older disney movies and and disney films and film and the things we consume kind of shape the way we see the world whether you like it or not mm-hmm. um so it is important to talk about how disney was essentially responsible well, not responsible but very complicit in um regressive shall we say gender roles yeah. and in many ways still are although they are certainly making efforts to buck that trend mm. Um, but yeah, so we can <laughs> I don't know where that came from. We go back to the <laughs> go back to the um, so sidekicks. There's loads of them. We got them all. Um, there's even a villain sidekick, uh, man in nature. I mean, it's pretty central to to this. It's you know how again you see the princess with the animals and you see her love of nature. That's kind of one of the only things we get about Aurora is that she really likes animals mm. and she's kind to animals. Um, and we see the way Maleficent manipulates nature with the, with the thorny trees and the, the mountains. And, and nature is very central to uh, the film. Uh, absence of a parent. Well, Aurora spends the whole time without her parents. Mm-hmm. And again, this idea of surrogate parents that we kind of spoke about with Flora, Fauna, and Meriwether. Um, and then Philip apparently has no mother because we never see her. But she he does have a father. Um, and then the Disney death, which is kind of... Not a Disney death, but but it kind of is too. It's a very prolonged one. Mm. Um, and it's kind of, again, playing on Snow White because Snow White could be awoken by True Love's Kiss and, and she can here as well. Um, and this is very much a film indebted to Snow White, but kind of like is Snow White version 2.0, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, except instead of expanding the princess, they make her less relevant, but they bring everyone else <laughs> up. It's, I, I can't get over it. I find it really frustrating. Um but yeah, no, it's it's in many ways in many ways indebted to Snow White, but it's a very different Disney death because it's very prolonged and there's not like well, there is a dramatic sequence when she pricks her, her finger and Maleficent reveals her like dead what looks yeah. like a dead body on the ground. So there is that moment, but there's none of that like everyone's around her crying. Do you know why? They're all asleep. <laughs> they can't. They have no idea. They are knocked out cold. Very good point. Um yeah. <laughs> all 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 the um all those kind of themes. And when we talked about those scenes initially, we kind of said that they were especially relevant in princess films. So once again, they are they are all there. Mm. Um, yeah. 
Um, what else have we got to, uh, I mean, I, I think we've talked everyone's ear off, but it's any, I guess we're on to like closing thoughts or do we want to talk a bit about the adaptation? Um, yeah, just, I think obviously like we, you, you kind of mentioned in, I think in the, the your little history bit about the, the songs and, and everything around that. And yeah. I was, there was definitely obviously like the one like standout song of this, which is the song that everyone knows and they love it so much in this film that you hear it like three times. And at the beginning, the middle and the yeah, end. Yeah, <laughs> it's basically, I think, I mean, that is obviously like the song that people, that people know from this. And it is a great song, but kind of unique in amongst Disney films of really being one of the only films that kind of just has that just has that like one song really i mean there's i i think with all the films you could argue there is like the best song or like a standout song or you know the 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 tentpole song where it's obviously like aladdin you would think of a whole new world and i yeah again failing to think See, of... that's funny because i would think a friend like me uh, i mean i yeah i think but i i get what you mean in terms of there's there's like in the nineties, there's usually one like big like romantic the big ballad, song that, yeah, like, that like power ballad that that like people think of first. That is true. Yeah, it's not my like friend like me is my favorite, and uh, actually no, Prince Ali is my favorite in Aladdin. <laughs> I love that film. Um, yeah, but it, the 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 a lot of the films that we've spoken about so far have got kind of like a couple of of really great songs in it, and that one kind of like really memorable one or like you know hardly any iconic songs according to me um but uh, <laughs> the sleeping beauty really just does have that yeah. one and it is there's, great um, there's but... a song called i wonder yes there's a song called all hail princess aurora which is just one of those like beginning songs that no one on earth remembers because mm. it, it just it's literally there to drive the plot forward yeah. it's fine uh and then there's once upon a dream i think there's one or two other short ones as well uh, but really, I mean, it, it is it is all about Once Upon a Dream because it's even not only do they say the song three times, but mm-hmm. it's a line that ends up being very crucial to the plot when mm-hmm. the they kind of both say it. Like Aurora says to the fairies, I once I've met him before once in Once Upon a yeah. Dream. He says to his father he met her once upon a dream, and then King Hubert reveals to them that he said once upon a dream and that's how they know it's prince philip mm. um so not only is the song it's kind of one of those unique examples where not only is the song uh, a pivotal song but it's also a pivotal plot point as well yeah and it's kind of like it's it's the you could almost see it as like the motif of of the film and it kind of reoccurs at at key points and is like you said like central to the plot like it's it's not just a song that exists it's out outside of the events of the film it is something you know they they clearly sing it together and then the actual like yep. lines from it then become like an important part of the plot so i think it's unique in that and it is also like a really really great song so i think it has a lot going for it and also doesn't really have much competition from the other songs because there aren't really any um no it's not really <laughs> the, yeah this isn't, this film's not really about the music you know it's not like um cinderella where they were big on the songs yeah. or alice in wonderland where there's like 77 songs <laughs> in it um you know or peter pan where they put a big you know this one's really about the style mm. and and like you know like i was saying at the beginning this is this whole film is inspired by like a a, a musical ballet which has no words yeah um you know and, and they eventually they made songs for it but you know this usually they would write a whole bunch of songs in mind and then kind of go from there which they did this time they there were songs written but they eventually scrapped that all except the one mm. um so that is that is uh it's a quite a unique point for for sleeping beauty especially for the princess film yeah they're quite 
music is quite central to all of them, especially the more modern ones. Yeah. Um, just thinking of like Little Mermaid, there's like seven million like really memorable songs from that film. Yeah, Beauty um, and the Beast. And Beauty and the well. Beast. Yeah. Um, Frozen. <laughs> Mulan has reflection. Yeah. Um, you know, they, there's they've all got those at least one. Oh yeah, Frozen has like seventy. <laughs> Tangled has like six. Amazing. I I think the tang- the music in Tangled is some of my favorite. Um, you know, there's there's really they're really musical focused. Mm. Um, while this one is probably of all the princess ones the least. Yeah. I think the the main thing about this film is like is the style and the look of it, and I like that it doesn't have the songs to kind of overshadow it. Like that is the thing that I remember from this is how like visually striking it is. Yeah, and absolutely. Aurora aside, how great the, the characters are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> aside from Aurora, you know. Um, um, okay. So <laughs> should we? Should we? So I guess a good way to end is to look to the future and and discover that this film had uh, two. Uh, Disney made. There are other adaptations of Sleeping Beauty that exist, mm-hmm. uh, but most importantly, we're talking Disney, so we might as well get on what Disney's done. Um, in 2014, uh, I believe, yes, 2014, they made Maleficent, uh, which is the only um, kind of Disney live-action remake recently that's specifically from a villain point of view, mm-hmm. uh, until, of course, Maleficent 2, because it was so popular. I think it made <laughs> like $750 million at the box office yeah. or something. Uh, so it certainly did well, so they made a second one. Um, you are a fan. Mm-hmm. I am not. I don't think it's awful. <laughs> I remember seeing it. I didn't see that. I haven't seen. Did you see the second one? I haven't. Yes, seen it. I've seen the second one. Yeah. Good. No, but I still love it. Okay. <laughs> I, I only want to watch it because Michelle Pfeiffer's in it, so yes. I will eventually. Um, my core problem with Maleficent and and kind of a a real struggle I have with any like villain origin thing is is sometimes you just I just don't want to know. Mm. I I don't because often the reason they are evil is disappointing and. Correct me if I'm wrong, because this is what I remember, and I only saw it the once in 2014, like six years ago, so I could be totally off base. But I believe the whole reason she is angry is because like a boy clipped her wings. Yeah, essentially. I mean, there's there's like uh, <laughs> there's a bit more. I know, to it than I know that, there's more. Than yeah, that, yeah, but yeah, like yeah. when it comes down to it, that that is like a, she liked a boy and he disappointed her. Pretty much, yeah. And that is very upsetting to it's me. It's quite reductive, yeah. Yeah, Maleficent is such like a engaging and and mysterious kind of evil. Yeah. Um, and to have it taken down to like a boy made her cry <laughs> is a deep disservice, I think, to say the least. And that that really bothered me. Also, I think it's pretty boring. Um, <laughs> that said, Angelina Jolie is very good. Yes. And a, a great fit for the role, and Al Fanning is is lovely as well as Aurora. Mm. Um. And you know, there's there's good actors in it, and it's it's well put together. It looks beautiful. Mm. I remember there's like one image of her of Maleficent like jumping out of a glass window and in like slow motion, and that's I remember that being quite a striking image. Yeah. But I don't know. I I don't think it's good. I don't think it was needed, and I didn't want it to exist because I I don't like what they did with her. Yeah, it's it's interesting, like what you're saying, because I I agree with so much of it. Like, I think sometimes the allure of a villain is not is the not knowing and just kind of, you know, part of the reason why I love Maleficent in Sleeping Beauty so much is just because you can like essentially boil boil it down to like she is mad that she didn't get invited to a party, and I live for that yeah. level of pettiness. Yeah, I prefer that. <laughs> but yeah, it's it, and. Th- but what I do like about Maleficent, and I think that particularly with some of the, we will definitely get onto the like live action ones that we absolutely despise, like when we come to those films. But I think why I 
do quite like this one is that it is not just like let's do a shot for shot of the existing film it does try to do something very different yeah and 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 i kind of applaud it for that and i can just see it as like adjacent to like i don't see it as kind of i know it's using the same character names and whatever and it's still disney but i don't kind of see it as like rewriting the maleficent of the animated that i know i just kind of see it as like a maleficent story and there's lots about it yeah there's like there's lots about it that i like i think the production design is gorgeous i think angelina jolie is amazing i absolutely hate with every fiber of my being the fairies in it i think they are terrible abominations and i wish that they didn't exist um i think they, like they have really good actors playing them as well I, but i'm just seeing that it's amelda staunton juno temple and leslie man yeah and i love wow. i don't i don't remember them at all but yeah they are both they are spectacular actors i love all of those and on paper that should absolutely be like a, a like particularly leslie manville who i stand but i it just it, it, i don't know i think it's something about the character design they give them these like really like annoying squeaky like squeaky voices and their heads are massive but their bodies are small like the oh, yeah that. the design of it, them it, is it just tra- upsetting for animation it does not translate to live action absolutely all, yeah it's that weird um, like uncanny valley thing like they they look like their real human selves but yet they have these like really strange looking little tiny bodies and i don't like it, it freaks me out a bit <laughs> um maleficent mistress of evil is bad like on paper bad um i kind of want to see it because it has michelle pfeiffer oh, That's the she's only reason I so oh she's so fierce in it like her i could just watch like her and angelina jolie just like be fabulous in it and like the outfits are fabulous and it's like really camp and over the top and i kind of love it for that but all right maybe i'll maybe i'll get that sounds like i need to yeah it's it. very it's like <laughs> <laughs> yeah please it's very trashy um I would not say that it is good, but I would say that at some point in my life, I would want to watch it again. <laughs> it might be soon because I'm now talking. <laughs> very much. I get. That. I get I'm that. talking myself into watching it now. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I get the criticisms, and I, I agree with them as well with Maleficent in in the the it loses some of that mystique. But I have just I think been able to kind of distance it from the animated and i think that's why i'm still able to enjoy it whereas we'll get to them but i'm thinking specifically of kind of like beauty and the beast and lion king like when we get onto those live action remakes they are for the most part shot for shot and you know take directly kind of like from the animated they just you know either put in some new cgi or it's yeah, well, Maleficent's also the only one popular enough to garner a sequel so far, and and maybe even yeah. another sequel. I don't know how successful the second. one I was. think it was pretty successful. Um, like, I th- I feel like it was successful. I don't think it did quite as well as the first, but I think that like potentially they would consider another one. Like, particularly it, it, they might even just kind of do like a straight to Disney Plus type of thing because I think it made four hundred ninety one million, which is not low. It's not low. I mean. Yeah, as long as people are going to see these things, I think that they will, so maybe they will. continue to make them. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I could talk about Sleeping Beauty forever, but I think that we've just about covered everything. Is there anything else you wanted to, to mention before we get on out of here? Uh, just a friendly reminder to watch it, because <laughs> it you probably forgot just how amazing it looks. Yeah. Uh, and it works really well as a film it's a really well structured story and i think the lack of subplots is 
uh, is useful because I think it really allows them to focus on one story and they do a good job with it. Mm. Uh, but it certainly is not without faults, as I think I, I we dove into. Yeah. It's funny because even though I can like pick holes in it, I'm still like, this is five stars because I just love oh, it's, looking it's at it. Magnificent. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> I don't know if, I mean, you know, there's a whole, we could talk about what ratings mean and <laughs> what best means and what the greatest means, but you know, is perfect a thing? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's nothing. There's always going to be like a second or two, or a minute or two, or a whole scene, or a whole concept that you know you might not like, but you can still love the actual thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Little Mermaid has. Uh, actually, I don't remember if I even love Little. Mermaid. Well, we'll we'll figure that out in like in a year. <laughs> um, but like you know, there's 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 issues with with everything. Yeah. But it doesn't stop it from being. An incredible experience like Sleeping Beauty is. So definitely watch it mm. again. If you've never seen it, absolutely watch it. And if you have seen it, you probably haven't seen it recently, so watch it again. Definitely. I this is one of the ones that I I had watched more recently. Um I think like some of the other ones that we've spoken about in the last like couple of weeks, I've been like, I oh, it's probably been like ten years since I last watched this, but Sleeping Beauty was like two years ago, so it is like fairly fresh to me, but I I had a completely different experience watching it this time and I think that mm. if people haven't seen it for a while or, or well if you've never seen it honestly I wish I could be you um but if you haven't seen it for a while I would say like watch it again because it's there's so much to appreciate in just how in how it looks and I think that that is something that I am really focused on when we're kind of like watching these films is the changing style and kind of particularly seeing how the the concept art and the vision actually kind of like translates into the film is something I find very, very fascinating. So I think this is the purest example of like the concept art is basically what you then get in the film. And I think that it's very unique in that sense. And no yeah. other Disney film looks like this. Few other animated films look like this. Um, It's so striking. I think it's it's not fair to kind of, you know, I think some people would just dismiss this as like just another princess film. And yes, the story is quite basic and there is not the cat. Every Disney film is, though. Yeah. It's, you know, <laughs> but, but they, they, they find ways to elevate it and, and make you feel like no one else. Can. Yeah, for sure. And like, yeah, the, you know, the, the character development of some of the characters leaves a lot to be desired, but then some of the others <laughs> are, yeah, just, just so on. <laughs> and some of the others are very nuanced. And it, yeah, it's just to look at if it wasn't obvious already. It is beautiful, and I want to stare at it all the time. Um, um, yeah, one one more thing from... Oh, sorry, were you... Did you have another thing? Uh, I was, I I was just going to say, we want that book. <laughs> oh, yeah, please. Someone out there, buy us Ivan Arles, the three million pound book. Um, I was just going to say, like, in terms of art and in terms of whether it's the best looking one, probably. Mm. Um, I think I remember saying that, that Pinocchio is kind of what people consider the pinnacle of, of animation, and in many senses, that's true. Um, because, but you know, there's 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 a 19 year difference in the two, in, in technology advances, and the way you can film advances, and the way you can animate advances. Um, and I think they're both kind of like the artistic peak of what they had at the time. Mm. Um, I think the difference is because Sleeping Beauty is so distinct in the way that it looks that it really stands out. Like it looks like it's probably the only one that you can frame an image from it put it on your wall and if someone has never seen a disney film they would assume it is a legitimate like an artist painted that painting Mm. you would assume it's a painting rather than an image from a film yeah and i think 
that might be what separates the two, if that makes sense. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that there's there's so much in just the look of this film that is so incredible and just honestly I could talk about it all day. I feel like we have talked about it for a while, but it was the thing I was most... Yeah, it's actually like three days from when we started. <laughs> it was like the thing I was most excited to talk about. And I kept like, I kept saying it as I was watching it. I was watching it with Martin. I think he got sick of me by the end because I was like, this film is stunning. I just love looking at it. And he's like, yeah, I know you said that already. <laughs> I was like, but it is. <laughs> but like, it's pretty. You're like, no, no, you did say that. Like, no, but it, it's pretty. Yeah, but look at it. Just look at it. <laughs> okay. But we encourage you all to go look at please, it. Please, please go look at it. And um, then uh, tweet us with your favorite shots from it because I'm ready to just look at it some more. And uh, me too. I would love to know what people's kind of like favorite moments are and the things that you find kind of like most striking about it and i think a lot of people will pick out the things that 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 we have as well but maybe there's you know someone has spotted something that we haven't seen and i would like to hear about it um and yeah i think that's i think that's about us for today so uh Absolutely. just before we get on out of here of course we want to highlight our amazing patrons um so the people who get their special podcast mention every week are that it's a longer list now, so are we ready for this? Um, <laughs> it is Chris Wilson, Let There Be Light Productions, Zoe Baines, Daryl Griffiths, Sam Luck, Orla Smith, Peter Hodgkins, Nicole Pott, Andy Meakin, Fabiana Rosas, and Hamish Calvert. Thank you to all of you. Um, soon that list is going to take up many, many minutes on the podcast, and that is great, <laughs> and I will still read them <laughs> because we are incredibly grateful uh, for all our patrons who support us and. Um, yeah, thank you so much to those guys in particular and everyone else who gives as well. Um, you can also become a patron if you would like and you can find details um, how to do that on Jumpcast website. There's a little Patreon button that you can hit and uh, find out all about the fabulous perks and the different levels that you can give at. Uh, not sure exactly when this episode will go out, but uh, there is a ne next issue of the magazine coming at some point. Super exciting. Um, and if you are a patron, you get that for free that is honestly worth the price alone so um do make sure that you sign up so you can read that um barry thank you as always for being fabulous and wonderful company um i'm glad that we both love this film uh equally i would say and i've had a great time talking about it with you um so uh where can people find you on uh twitter letterboxd wherever um if they want to yeah, uh, Letterboxd is, uh, I think, I, I say it every time, but I can't remember. It's B. Levitt, L-E-V-I-T-T. -T. <laughs> uh, and then Twitter is uh, B. Levitt 93, and you can find me there. Yes, indeedy. And you can find me at Sarah Buddery, and you can find all of us at Jumpcast underscore. You can check out all of our written reviews, features, interviews, news, and more at jumpcartonline.co.uk. And go straight to jumpcartonline.co.uk forward slash jumpcast to find out where you can find all of our podcast episodes. The next Jumpcast episode will be dropping on Monday and we'll be back with a brand new Disney episode next Friday. We'll see you then. Mm -hmm.